Please take your Bibles and turn now back to Genesis. Genesis 29, we've come to the long section of Genesis, starting in this chapter, really, that focuses on Jacob and his sons. Now, one of the strong arguments for the clear authenticity of the biblical record has to be the honesty that the author Moses, um, the honesty that he comes from in giving us the true picture of the origins of this nation. If you would look at some of the great empires of the world, in most cases, especially from antiquity in this part of the world that Moses lived in, it was not unusual for that uh, rising empire, whoever were leading them in their battles or to take the next conquest, uh, they would have a mythological or a legendary tale of their origin. The Persians were famous for these kinds of myths about uh, their, their ancestors and how they built up to be this great people that can now take on the world. Um, the Greeks followed this to some degree, and the Romans, for sure, founded Rome on the basis of a couple brothers and um, their, uh, their background uh, as a family. Um, you would want to inspire your people to follow you and believe the nation would be great, going into great sacrificial battles, but you want to know you come from strong lines, lines that um, were meant to be successful and to dominate like they would. But now you have the origin of the great nation of Israel before you, the passage before us in all the warts you can imagine. It is not a story of pride. Think of the first people who got the full message of the book of Genesis. Now, obviously, the, the accounts had been told over the centuries, but now it's Moses Israel has been formed. They've been saved out of slavery to Egypt, two million strong, building up their momentum, ready to head into the promised land, coming out of the wilderness. Uh, The nations around are stirring, knowing that something's happening. And here is Moses trying to inspire the people of God to be the great nation of Israel. Uh, To do that, you would not give this story. You would not tell them, this is what you come from, 12 tribes. Uh, we can be sure of its authenticity for many reasons, but one of the reasons, most clear, is how honest the biblical text is about history. This is the true story of how God fulfilled his promise to make Abraham a great nation. Now, we left off before Palm Sunday with Laban tricking the trickster. You remember how Laban fooled Jacob into marrying Leah. After seven years, of work, thinking he was marrying Rachel, who we loved. He does a switch on the wedding night, Laban does, and now Jacob's married to Leah. Not just Leah, but Leah's maidservant as well. Scrambling now, the deceiver himself can't get himself out of this situation. He wants Rachel as his wife. So he strikes another deal to marry Rachel for seven more years of labor to Laban, and her handmaiden too. So Jacob, find, he effectively finds himself married to four women, coming out of his wedding night. Hughes says his marriage situation was singularly unpromising. That is an understatement to say the least, as we will see. Yet God's covenant promises are not nullified by our disobedience, our disarray, and our dysfunction. Here as I read God's word, I'll start at verse 31 of Genesis 29. And I'll read through verse 24 of chapter 30. Just as a reminder, what I'm reading here is not uh, human authorship. 
Moses was used by God, and the Spirit of God kept Moses free from error in writing. This is God's inspired, inerrant, and therefore authoritative word. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son. She called his name Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she, shall be, she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her, her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, Good fortune has come, so she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken my husband away, my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came home from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come unto me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I, have, I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterward, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, 
may the Lord add to me another son. Now before I take us before the throne of grace to ask for God's help in understanding and applying this passage, let's just be sure we get this straight so far. Jacob got tricked by Laban and Leah into marrying Leah seven years after he thought he was marrying Rachel. He got to marry Rachel but had to work seven more years. And then on his wedding night, he ended up with not only two wives but with four wives effectively and only one of those women did he want to be married to. Of his two main wives, Leah seemed to be the only one able to have children at first. And this causes great turmoil and pain for Rachel and between Rachel and Leah. Yet, despite bearing all these children to Jacob, seven in total, Leah is not loved by Jacob and she is miserable for it. These two sisters have a hateful relationship with rivalry and jealousy and they engage in baby wars essentially throughout. Rachel resorts uh, resorts to her maidservant bearing her husband more children, then Leah responds with her maidservant in the same way. Are you you tracking with me still? The sons of Jacob would go on to live lives of competition between each other, distrust and rivalry. We'll see how that unfolds in the weeks and months to come. Four wives, 11 sons, eventually 12, another will be born to Rachel. Turmoil, neglect, anger, sorrow, rivalry, and pain in the house of Jacob. Yet, by the great sovereign sovereign providence of God, by the, by the end of this chapter, 11 of the 12 sons who would be the 12 tribes of Israel were born. Now let's pray. Oh Lord, we could feel the strife and turmoil in this passage. The passage covers years quickly, but with every human being involved, there's pain and there's discord, anxiety and rivalry, tension and controversy abound. Yet every word of your scriptures has importance to us. Please help us to understand what we have read in terms of your sovereign plan for redemption through Christ. And then on the very practical level, may we draw from your word the wisdom that is intended for us as well. O Lord, your word is truth. And by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, please sanctify us by your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. The timeline of Genesis and the events therein are meant to build up to the person of Jesus Christ. In Genesis 3, the promise of the one to come to crush the head of the serpent, Jesus Christ, he's promised, in the story of Genesis, unfolds how God fulfills that promise. He promises to Abraham to make him a great nation. He renews the promise through Isaac. He renews the promise again through Jacob. But at this point, there are not that many people yet in this great nation. And that starts to change here. In all its difficulty and complexity, we see how God will unfold his plan that will eventually lead to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Referring to this particular passage and how messy it is, one preacher said, it's making a silk purse from a sow's ear. Now that's a proverb I looked up because I thought it was so interesting. And it comes from medieval times. In fact, the first time it was probably used in a spiritual sense was from a Scottish preacher just after the Reformation. Apparently, you can take the ear of a pig and you could peel away the skin and you can melt down the cartilage and the gristle, add a few common chemicals, 
and it dries out into this uh, a bit of a sheet of it looks like fabric, but it's got a bit of a rubbery texture. But you can peel away the strands and make fibers out of those that can then be woven into various kinds of things that you would normally have as cloth. It was a cheap uh, replacement or substitute for this. You could make a lot of things with it that worked, but you could tell it wasn't actually from cloth. The cloth from a sow's ear would be very clear and different from silk. This is why the statement's so profound. You can't make a silk purse from a sow's ear. Now, you couldn't, and I couldn't, but God can, and he does all the time. And this story is about as much a sow's ear as you can imagine, and God turning it into a silk purse, ultimately. That's what God does with these muddled-up lives and relationships of the patriarchs. And Jacob outdoes Abraham and Isaac in spades. Nevertheless, from the disobedience, the disarray, the dysfunction we see in Jacob's life, from this come the 12 tribes of Israel. From the mess in the mire of one bad decision after another, one painful choice after the next, comes Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. When you read a story like this, and there are plenty of them, but this is pretty stark, only the Lord could make a family story and dynamic like this be part of his plan for redemption. And this ought to give all of us hope because every one of us has dysfunction within our families or not too far removed from things that are sort of like what we're reading. Now, not so much the polygamy piece, but there are features of the culture that press upon our families and upon us that we succumb to often, and it causes great pain and difficulty. Hughes said, This is messy. Multiple wives, multiple births, sister hatred, brother hatred, all of which will be acted out over the years. It always, always, always turns out that when God's created order is ignored or scorned, that pain and suffering come after it. Very simply, in the most plain terms, God sets up the pattern for human relationships, the family, in fact, in Genesis 2, verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother. And I have to say that carefully today to be clear. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That is the basis for civilization. That's God's order for things. Anything different from this will necessarily bring difficulty, pain, and suffering. And I know many people today will say that's antiquated. What you Christians believe isn't true anymore. We, we, blur, we take away those boundaries. Well, my response is, how well is that working for this depressed and distant and constantly upset and lost culture we live in? So much of it comes from this basic ignorance or ignoring of or scorning what God has said. In the case of polygamy, as we read it in the Bible, this particular violation of God's created order, Arthur Pink really summarizes it well. He says, No reflecting Christian mind can read through this chapter without being disgusted with the fruitage and consequences of polygamy as therein described. The domestic discords, the envies, and the jealousies between Jacob's several wives 
forcibly illustrate and demonstrate the wisdom of God's law that each man should have his own wife as well as each woman her own husband. Operating against God's design for marriage and family are at the base of the problems here that we see. Still, the Lord makes a silk purse from a sow's ear. If we look at the passage, the very beginning sets the sense of the whole matter. Verse 31 in chapter 29. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. You remember that Leah was in on tricking Jacob. From the get-go, she, he didn't want to marry her. She knew this, but she thought she could win him over some way and was in on the ruse with her father to marry Jacob. And the Lord saw that Jacob had no affection for her in this way, yet she was his wife. Leah was hated. More literally, it means she was unloved. She was not considered. It's a terrible situation for her. And what's so sad is every child she has, though a blessing, she names that child with hope that her husband will love her and recognize her, acknowledge her. It's it's a pathetic scene for sure. There are few things more pathetic than the naming of her first three sons, as Kidner says in his commentary, and he's right. Look at the names, and you'll see and you'll sense where Leah is coming from, and you'll feel for her. In verse 32, she names Reuben. And all these names, have um, they sound somewhat like the Hebrew words. These, these phrases in their names match in this way. Reuben. And why does she name him this? Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. Finally, I have, I have a child. Now he has to love me. She wants him to love her so bad. He'll, anything she'll do to get his love and his devotion. But then she has a second child, and we learn something Further, Simeon, because the Lord, verse 33, has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also, referring to the fact that she's still not being accepted by Jacob. For Reuben, she said, certainly he'll love me now. Now she has a second, he still doesn't love her. The Lord has heard that I'm hated, Simeon. Then Levi, now, this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Certainly Jacob will love me now. These three sons. Now she participated in the scheme to marry Jacob. She didn't follow even God's leading in that direction. Sure, she was pressured by her family, and that was even more difficult in those days to resist this. But this causes a lasting disconnect. She longs for his acceptance. You know, on the basic level, a lesson for all of us is when we try to find our worth in what other human beings think about us, even people close to us, we will always end disappointed because they are struggling people too. Now, there are great human relationships God blesses us with, and we find much satisfaction there in a, a healthy marital relationship or parental mar- a relationship, in friends re- friendships for sure. But we can't put all of our stock, all of our, all of our devotion into a person if that person does not receive us then we are broken and we fall apart as a result of it. Now, there's another lesson here that I think speaks especially when it comes to marriage. And I think it relates to the way our world lives. Now, polygamy is not the issue so much today. Uh, But the issues of sexual purity are a big deal. The hookup culture, the idea of don't worry about what the Bible says about marriage. Um, Try out all these things. 
I would suggest that has harmed everybody, but I think it's harmed women the most. And we see this situation with Leah. She so desperately wants her husband to love her. And I would just say to our sisters that you don't have to do anything to gain or earn someone's love. You should not give of yourself what should only be given in marriage because some guy might like you or love you. If he's willing to do that, he won't love you then and he won't love you later. It's very important for us to recognize the order of things that God has and don't cave in to just because this culture thinks it has wisdom. How wise is it? How happy are people today? How joyful are people? It's the most depressed generation we've ever seen for all its freedom and liberty. Yet the scripture gives us where there's liberty, liberty within the bounds that God has called us to. And this is a good lesson for all of us. But when we think of Leah especially, thinking that she could do all these things to earn her husband's love, make him earn your love. And you know how that happens ultimately or prove his love for you? How that ultimately happens is marriage when he forsakes all others. Much more could be said there, but we'll move on. Verse 35, finally, a fourth son that isn't a referent to what's happened um, with her husband's lack of love. This son, verse 35, this time I will praise the Lord. It's almost as though she realizes Jacob's not going to love me, but he's given me four sons now, and I name him Judah. Praise. That's what it means. It's interesting to note in God's providence that God did not choose the eventual children of Rachel to be the ones from which the Messiah would come. In fact, Levi, born to Leah, becomes the the father of the priestly line, those who would keep the tabernacle and the temple, work as mediators with the sacrificial system for the people. And then, of course, Judah. Judah is is the father of the line of the Messiah. The tribe of Judah is where Jesus comes from, born to Leah. Now we move to chapter 30. Rachel has been watching her sister's Instagram for some time. One baby after another. And her life, of course, on the Insta is perfect. Look at how great she's got four children now. Now she doesn't know the turmoil, because you don't know the turmoil off the Insta, only what it's on it. And she sees four kids, and I can't have even one. And she builds up in her anger against her sister, against God, against her husband. Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, and she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children, or I shall die. My life is wrapped up in childbearing, and I've got to have a child, or I must, I will die. It's such extreme language, and Jacob hears it. And it says, Jacob's anger, verse 2 of chapter 30, was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Now let's notice something about Jacob's response. Let's compare it for a moment, quickly, to Abraham and Isaac. They had their share of mess-ups too. But in the case of Abraham and Isaac, we we have reference to them praying to God that God would give their wives children. Really, in the case of Isaac, it's most stand, uh, it's, it stands out the most. He was 40 and started praying for his wife to be able to have a child. It was 20 years later that she had that child. And he's wrestling with God, praying to God that he could have a child, that they could have a child. In the case of Jacob, he's acting very carnally. And I want to be clear. We've seen from Jacob, he has faith. 
Remember the whole episode with the ladder, and he was alive and unto what God was doing. But he went from a place of faith and making his choices by faith to living by the flesh almost immediately. And so most of this episode is wrapped up in a bunch of people who are not acting by faith in God's promises, but by carnal means, by fleshly uh, instincts. And Jacob's still in that mindset, although he's using theological language about God. That's actually true. It's not tender towards his wife at all. It's not, yes, let's go to the Lord and ask him to answer this prayer. Instead, he is angry with Rachel and says, don't get mad at me. God's the one who does this. Now, what happens next, we've seen before. Then she said, verse 3, here's my servant Bilhah, go into her so that she may birth on my behalf and even I may have children through her. Now, it's not at all that we should assume Jacob to be ignorant to what happened with Abraham. Of course he knows. But now he's in so deep with so many things right now, it's just, to him, it's probably whatever to appease her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived and bore a son, Jacob a son. Then Rachel's response in verse 6, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, his name will be Dan. Not only did Bilhah give Jacob one son, but another. Verse 7, she conceived again, a second son now. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and prevailed. Now, I don't know how Rachel's keeping track, but it's four to two right now. And neither the two are hers, but this is how bad the relationship is between these sisters. I mean, how bad could it be that you go back and forth naming your your children, one about my husband not loving me enough, the other one about I want to let you know uh, I got one now too. I mean, what about the children in all of this? It's a terrible scene, and the dynamics are awful. Jacob working from impatience and not faith, and the women as well. But now he has six sons, and yet the baby wars have only just begun. It gets even stranger pretty soon. Leah saw, verse 9, that she had ceased bearing children, so she takes her servant, Zilpah, and gave her to Jacob as, his wife, as a wife. Leah's servant, Zilpah, bore Jacob a son. Good fortune has come. Call his name Gad. She just knows she's up one, she's up another. Then the servant, Zilpah, bore another son, this time Asher, which means happy am I. Six to two now, if you're keeping score. Six to two. This is what's happening. In Leah's mind, I've given so much Uh, Four sons and then two more for my servant. Two, just from Rachel's servant. Just when you think it could not get more sordid and weird, verse 14. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Now, a word on mandrakes. These are a perennial Mediterranean, uh, Mediterranean plant with blue flowers. They were used as a sort of aphrodisiac mixed with a fertility drug, but most of it was just wives' tales mixed with magic. And pagan nations in that area would use it, pagan people would use it as part of rituals. They'd make potions out of it. And the whole idea is that it would, it would, uh, it would cause desire and it would also cause babies to be born. And at this point, um, no, there's no praying to the Lord for this. This is Rachel saying, I need that. And they're rare enough. And here Reuben finds some... Uh, you know that this had to take everything in Rachel to go ask for these of Leah. But that's what she does. Rachel said to Leah in verse 14, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. I mean, the, the, how humbling that had to be. But her sister says to her, 
because now there's no marital relations going on, apparently, between Jacob and Leah. She had ceased bearing. We know she can bear, but that's the idea of the text. She says in response to Rachel, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel doesn't seem to skip a beat, at least not in the text she doesn't. Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. I mean, the the reduction of humanity here to a breeding kennel, basically, is what it comes out to be. Between people, no care for the depth of relationship or the model of what God has for them, what it's supposed to provide in their intimacy. Never mind, it's all about one-upping the other um, for the affection of the husband, ultimately, and for the rapport among the people. Leah gets her night with Jacob, or two, Rachel gets her mandrakes. And which is, what's so pathetic, really, about the story is Leah ends up having two more children for a total of six sons, and Rachel never has a child as a result of the mandrakes after all of that. Jacob came home from the field. Leah went out to meet him. You must come into me, for I have hired you. The fifth son comes from this, Issachar. Rachel gains... Nothing. Leah conceives again, and now a sixth son. Six from her. And I think verse 20 might be one of the more pathetic verses in all of Scripture. If I were doing a full sermon to entreat young people who are not married yet to really be careful about what they do to attract other people, to make sure that there's an actual genuine relationship that's based on love and not all the superficial things that are so forecasted today that lead to terrible despair. If I were to do one sermon on that, it would be on verse 20 in Genesis chapter 30. Leah said, after all this, bore six sons, six sons to Jacob. God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. That's a pathetic statement that makes you feel for her that after all of this labor she's gone through, the difficulties of it all, yet at the end of this, there is never an indication once that Jacob honors her. All this for him, and in the end, he never, she never has his love. So she called his name Zebulun. Leah's total value was wrapped up in Jacob's acceptance of her, and there was never any indication at the beginning or during that there was love for her from Jacob. Afterwards, she bore a daughter named Dinah, who will figure into their story. Seven children, seven children she blessed Jacob with. Then finally, after ten sons were born to Jacob from three, three other women, the wife that Jacob loved finally conceived. Verse 22, then God remembered Rachel. And God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. Eleven of the sons now born. Benjamin, the youngest, will be born in a bit. In great irony, after she had told Jacob that she would die if she did not have another children, she dies in childbirth with Benjamin. Only the Lord could make this family story and dynamic to be part of his plan of redemption, which should give us all hope, every one of us here. We all have stuff. But God makes a silk purse out of this. He could do it in your life too. 
probably has in many ways already. I want you also to remember the original audience. Imagine you're Israel, ready to take the promised land, and this is the story you hear about the origin of your tribes. It would cause you to be humble and recognize everything you see by way of blessing has not been because of the choices we make. It's because of the promises of God. And that elevates us to another level, another awareness of God in his watch care over us. Whatever your situation, God can make a silk purse from it. R.S. Candlish provides a helpful summary of what we have just read. He says this, What mean these wretched bickering and jarrings in that ill-assorted home? To what purposes is this incident of haste in these women? Why all this miserable game of rivalry, defiling of honorable marriage, this pitiable trade and traffic of mandrakes, and all the other incidents which so offend us, enacted beneath the roof of yet a professed man of God? Does the Lord stand in need of such devices and doings as these for the raising up of the seed of Abraham? The Lord was pleased, despite how everything was done through these unholy devices, to use Jacob's sons for the founding of his church in Israel. So he manifests his sovereignty and his power, his electing grace and overruling providence. But surely for Jacob himself and all concerned in these strange and sad affairs, it would have been better far if faith had from all along been the f- at first allowed to rule. If Jacob in faith had dealt more frankly and more boldly with Laban. If Laban and his house had in faith received Jacob. If all parties had in simple faith Follow the Lord's guiding eye in simple faith, leaving the event to him. And there is the warning to us. Maybe you are about to make a really bad choice. Then this passage is for you. It's for me. And this psalm that I will close with is also for you, one that I think would have done well in the minds of Jacob and all those who are part of this story if they had recited it or thought of it at the time. Psalm 37. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoer shall be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Please bow with me as I lead us in prayer. O Lord, we can feel the pain and the unrest of this whole episode the turmoil and pain felt by everyone involved. Yet, despite our sinfulness and our disobedience, you keep to your promises and purposes. And this gives us confidence that no matter how much we mess things up, your ultimate purposes for your glory and our good cannot be thwarted. But still, O Lord, please help us to be a people of faith first and not act so rashly based on our flesh or on the desire to please people instead of you. Please spare us the pain that comes from carnal choices. 
by your Holy Spirit, so convince us of the love of Christ that we would live our lives by faith in your plan for us and not in the wavering principles of this fallen and declining world. I pray this through Christ. Amen. Let's together turn in our hymnals as a hymn of response. God moves in a mysterious way. That's for sure. 128. We'll stand and sing the first four verses as the elders and the ushers come to prepare the table. <laughs> 